If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi everyone, this is Brian Wong, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today we're talking about pulmonary tuberculosis. If you're following along in your book, this is case number 40, entitled A 54-Year-Old Male with chronic cough and weight loss. Let's jump into the case. We have a 54-year-old Filipino male, originally from the Philippines, presenting to the emergency room, complaining of night sweats, a 15-pound unintentional weight loss over the past three months, and a chronic productive cough without hemoptysis. He has no known past medical history, but also has not seen a physician in decades. He endorses polyuria and polydipsia. Review of systems is otherwise negative. So the first question we have to entertain at this point is what infection control measure should we immediately institute? The patient should immediately be placed in airborne isolation because pulmonary tuberculosis, or TB, is in the differential diagnosis for an immigrant with chronic cough and systemic symptoms. Avoiding nosocomial transmission of TB from patients with infectious active pulmonary TB disease is a high priority. The patient should be given a surgical mask and placed in a single room with a closed door, preferably negative pressure. Airborne isolation with an antechamber is also preferred. Healthcare personnel should wear appropriately fitted N95 masks while caring for patients under evaluation for pulmonary tuberculosis. Now back to our case. The patient is moved to an airborne isolation room, additional history is obtained, and it is known that he is employed in construction but also has been unable to work recently because of his weakness. He immigrated from the Philippines 18 years ago. He has no known sick contacts and no known exposures to TB. He denies exposure to prisons, jails, homeless shelters, or nursing homes. He smokes one pack of cigarettes per day. He denies drinking alcohol or illicit drug use. On physical exam, he is afebrile and vital signs are normal. He is not hypoxic. However, he is cachectic 
with mild bitemporal wasting. His dentition is poor. There is no visible oral thrush. He has scattered ronchi in the left upper lung field and mildly decreased breath sounds bilaterally. Otherwise, the lungs are clear to auscultation. Cardiac exam is benign. There is no palpable hepatosplenomegaly, ascites, or other stigmata of chronic liver disease. He has no clubbing or peripheral edema, but there is onychomycosis of the toes bilaterally. No other notable findings. So at this point, what is the differential diagnosis of chronic cough with constitutional symptoms? Without the night sweats and weight loss, the differential diagnosis of chronic cough is very broad and includes common non-infectious etiologies such as asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, post-nasal drip, and gastric esophageal reflux disease. However, this patient has significant constitutional symptoms. So we are concerned more about underlying diseases, such as pulmonary TB caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis, non-tuberculous mycobacteria, or NTM, infection, such as mycobacterium avium complex, human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, presenting with an opportunistic infection is also in the differential, endemic fungal infections such as coccidiomycosis or histoplasmosis, malignancy, especially because the patient smokes tobacco, is also a consideration. One must also think about chronic anaerobic lung abscess, interstitial lung disease, and rheumatologic diseases such as sarcoidosis and granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or GPA. The next step is what initial test should be ordered. A chest radiograph, or chest x-ray, is an important initial diagnostic test in evaluating chronic cough with unintentional weight loss. A sputum specimen for acid-fast bacilli, or AFB smear, microscopy, and culture should be obtained every 8 to 24 hours for a total of three specimens. A nucleic acid amplification test, or NAT, N-A-A-T, should be ordered on at least the first sputum specimen. NAT tests, N-A-A-T tests, include but are not limited to TB polymerase chain reaction, or PCR tests, Amplicor, MTB, Amplified Mycobacterium tuberculosis direct test, and Cepheid gene expert. These tests are more specific and sensitive than AFP sputum smears. All patients under evaluation for TB should be tested for HIV. Basic lab testing should include a complete blood count, CBC, electrolyte panel, liver panel, LFTs, and screening for viral hepatitis, at least hepatitis A, B, and C. The patient has unexplained polyuria and polydipsia, which should be evaluated with a glycosylated hemoglobin or hemoglobin A1C for diabetes screening. Moreover, diabetes is one of several risk factors for progression from latent TB infection to active TB disease. Additional diagnostic workup should be considered based on epidemiologic risk factors and initial findings. For example, if the chest x-ray is abnormal and the patient has lived in the desert southwest, serology for the endemic fungal infection valley fever or coccidiomycosis should be ordered. 
Malignancy is an important consideration, especially as the patient is a smoker. However, TB must be evaluated before considering procedures such as bronchoscopy with biopsy or computed tomography or CT-guided biopsy of a lung mass. A CT scan of the chest should be ordered if malignancy is suspected after initial workup, and sputum cytology is a non-invasive test that can be obtained as part of the evaluation. So a clinical pearl, to uh, remind you, is in addition to three sputums for AFB smear and culture, order a NAAT or NAT nucleic acid amplification test on at least the first sputum of all patients under evaluation for pulmonary TB. In your book, you see figure 40.1, which is the natural history of tuberculosis infection and disease. So looking at that, we get an idea of what the difference is between latent TB infection and active disease. So persons who are exposed to TB from a coughing source patient with active pulmonary TB inhale bacilli into their lungs. In most immunocompetent patients, the immune response contains the infection in walled-off granulomas. The person is asymptomatic and non-infectious. This state is called latent TB infection, or LTBI. The person has been exposed to and infected with TB, but has no clinical symptoms of active TB disease. Bear in mind that the large majority, about 90% of persons with LTBI, never progress to active TB disease. In the United States, the majority of patients who do develop active TB disease were initially infected years and often decades prior. This is because TB's uniquely long latent period. Active TB disease may occur because of waning immune control of TB infection as a result of aging or other medical condition. This presentation is referred to as reactivation TB. A small proportion of TB patients develop active disease soon after primary infection. And this usually occurs more often in immunosuppressed patients, such as those with HIV or acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, AIDS. A couple other key takeaways from the picture in the chart is that a patient with latent TB infection has a 5 to 10% lifetime risk. And half of that risk, 5%, is in the first two years after infection. With TB. In evaluating latent TB infection, the question comes up, what is the utility of a tuberculin skin test or an interferon gamma release assay, an IGRA, IGRA test, such as the quantiferon TB gold intube test in a patient suspected of having active pulmonary TB? How do these screenings tests work? So these tests are screening tests for TB infection but do not distinguish latent TB infection from active TB. These tests are of limited utility in evaluating patients suspected of having active TB. When evaluating for active TB, it is crucial to pursue diagnostic tests, including AFB smears, cultures, and nucleic acid amplification tests, such as TB-PCR, on specimens collected at the site of disease. In the case of concern for TB pneumonia, 
that would mean sending fresh sputum for TB evaluation. So if you're worried about active pulmonary TB, you need to get sputum to evaluate for pulmonary TB. Screening tests for TB infection requires an immune response to TB antigens. Patients with prior TB infection develop memory cells so that when exposed to TB antigens again, they develop a detectable immune response. For the tuberculin skin test, or TST, the TB antigens are injected intradermally in the form of purified protein derivative, PPD. For IGRA assays, TB antigens are coated on the wall of a test tube, which is then exposed to the patient's lymphocyte-containing serum. A measurable immune response is quantified either as the size of induration at the site of the PPD injection or as the amount of interferon produced by the activated lymphocytes in the IGRA tube. However, immunosuppressed patients who are at greatest risk of progression to active TB disease are often unlikely to mount a significant immune response to these screening tests, despite being infected with TB. Therefore, an indeterminate or negative TST or IGRA test does not rule out active nor latent TB disease in patients with clinical signs and symptoms compatible with TB disease. Let's return back to our case. Initial chest X-ray is performed and shown in figure 40.2. The patient has a left upper lobe cavity and signs of volume loss with apical scarring. Hemoglobin A1c is 10.4%. CBC shows mild thrombocytosis. Electrolytes and liver panel are normal. Sputum AFB smear is 3 plus positive and the AFB sputum culture and TB PCR are pending. So the next question that arises is what risk factors does this patient have for infection with mycobacterium tuberculosis? What risk factors does he have for progression from latent infection to active TB disease? Well, the patient's primary risk factor for TB infection is being a foreign-born person in a TB endemic country in this case, the Philippines. In a CDC report from 2012 to 2016, the top five countries of birth of foreign-born TB patients living in the U.S. came from Mexico, the Philippines, India, Vietnam, and China. All areas of Asia, Africa, South and Central America, and Eastern Europe are considered endemic TB areas. Other risk factors for infection with TB include work or residence in a healthcare setting, living in a homeless shelter, being in a correctional facility, or other congregate settings, as well as recent close contact with an infectious TB case. The patient's risk factors for progression progression from latent infection to active TB disease include poorly controlled diabetes and smoking. For progression to active TB disease, there are several important medical risk factors, as seen in Table 40.1. A key example in the table are diabetes mellitus, end-stage renal disease, history of tobacco smoking, underlying malignancy, silicosis, low body weight, being a BMI less than 20. 
Of these risk factors, the two that confer the greatest risk for progression to active TB disease are HIV infection, especially among patients not taking antiretroviral therapy, and immunosuppression, especially in patients taking tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors, such as infliximab, etanercept, and others of that sort, as well as those on chronic glucocorticoid treatment of greater than 15 milligrams of prednisone equivalents per day for one month or longer. Other notable risk factors for progression to active TB disease include recent conversion from a negative to a positive tuberculin skin test, or IGRA test. Other concerning risk factors include substance use, alcohol, tobacco, and especially injection drug use, and radiographic evidence of old healed TB, fibrotic or fibronodular disease, not meaning calcified granulomas, with no past history of TB treatment. So if you have a cavity and no history of treatment, that is also a big concern. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, does this patient have TB disease? The patient is AFB smutum smear positive and has multiple risk factors for TB. TB disease is a likely diagnosis but should be confirmed by a nucleic acid amplification test or a sputum culture. The diagnosis is not yet confirmed because the sputum smear is not specific for mycobacterium tuberculosis. There are many other mycobacteria that are acid-fast positive and can cause sputum to be also smear positive. For example, Mycobacterium avium, Mycobacterium kansasii, and Mycobacterium abscessus can cause cavitary disease in the lungs with a similar presentation to tuberculosis disease. These other non-TB mycobacteria are collectively referred to as non-tuberculous mycobacteria or NTM, atypical mycobacteria, or mycobacteria other than tuberculosis, MOTT. One subcategory of NTM is known as the rapid growers and includes Mycobacterium chelonie, Mycobacterium abscessus, and Mycobacterium fortuitum. These mycobacteria can cause significant pulmonary disease and usually grow on culture in 7 to 10 days unlike mycobacterium tuberculosis, which usually takes two to five weeks to grow. There is also certain environmental NTMs or non-tuberculous mycobacteria, such as mycobacterium gordoniae, that are found in water systems and other environmental sources. When found, these NTM are usually considered a contaminant rather than true pathogens. So, as a clinical pearl, just remember AFB smear positive sputum may be caused by non-tuberculous mycobacterium as well as mycobacterium tuberculosis. Let's turn back to our case. The TB-PCR, a nucleic acid amplification test, is positive on the AFB smear positive sputum specimen. So the big million dollar question is, does this confirm the diagnosis of TB? If so, 
what treatment should we start? The answer is yes. This confirms the diagnosis of pulmonary TB. And we should still follow up on the culture results, which would be available in maybe two to six weeks. And the drug susceptibility test to confirm that the isolate is not a drug-resistant TB. Confirming that the patient's isolate is drug-susceptible may take weeks because TB grows slowly in culture media. Unless you have a reason to suspect drug resistance, for example, the health department informs you that the patient is a close contact of another patient who is known to have drug-resistant TB, you should start standard treatment with the four first-line TB drugs, pending results of susceptibility testing. TB is always treated with multiple medications because of the risk of selecting for drug resistance when monotherapy is used. The four standard first-line drugs are rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, often referred to as RIPE, R-I-P-E, in U.S. healthcare settings. Pyridoxine, or vitamin B6, is given along with isoniazid to help prevent peripheral neuropathy. The first two months are called the intensive phase of treatment. After completion of the intensive phase, pyrazinamide and ethambutol may be discontinued. Rifampin and isoniazid are continued for the next four months, called the continuation phase of TB treatment. Although standard treatment is usually six months long, if the patient cannot tolerate the initial two months of pyrazinamide, total TB treatment duration must be extended to nine months. Drug dosing for RIPE therapy is weight-based, and TB patients are often underweight, so check the patient's weight and calculate the dosages appropriately. Be aware that rifampin is metabolized by the liver and upregulates the cytochrome P450 enzyme system, increasing the rate of clearance of other drugs. There are potential serious drug interactions with warfarin, antiretroviral medications, hormonal contraceptives, and other medications. So always check the medication list of the patient carefully for drug interactions. Rifibutin has less effect on the P450 system and sometimes may be substituted for rifampin when drug interactions are a concern. So the clinical pearls are, one, always start treatment for TB with multiple drugs to avoid selecting for drug resistance. The first four TB drugs for drug-sensitive TB are rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. Never add a single drug to a failing TB regimen. The second clinical pearl is rifampin is metabolized by the liver and has many drug interactions, including with warfarin, antiretroviral therapy, antifungal azoles, and oral contraceptives so always check for interactions. Where interactions cannot be avoided, consider substituting rifibutin for rifampin. The next question is a very important question faced by providers taking care of patients that may have TB or community-acquired pneumonia. And that question is, why should we be cautious about using fluoroquinolones for community-acquired pneumonia when TB is also in the differential diagnosis? A common pitfall is treatment of a patient with pulmonary infiltrates and chronic cough for presumptive community-acquired pneumonia with a fluoroquinolone, such as levofloxacin or moxifloxacin, 
only to later find out that the diagnosis was actually TB is problematic. Fluoroquinolones have good activity against mycobacterium tuberculosis. Treatment with fluoroquinolone monotherapy often leads to initial clinical improvement until the patient relapses with TB disease that has become resistant now to that fluoroquinolone. A better choice when treating empirically for bacterial pneumonia in a patient who is also a TB suspect is a macrolide such as azithromycin or, for inpatients, a beta-lactam antibiotic such as ceftriaxone combined with the macrolide. So now let's talk about TB treatment failure. What is TB treatment failure? What are some reasons for treatment failure? Patients who fail to convert from TB culture's positivity to negative after four months of treatment are classified as failing treatment. Some reasons for treatment failure include patient non-adherence to the TB regimen. It also can be because of malabsorption of the TB drugs or baseline or acquired TB drug resistance. If it appears that your patient is failing treatment or is not improving clinically, meaning failing to gain weight, their cough is not improving or resolving, you should consult with an experienced TB clinician for guidance. An important principle is, again, never add a single drug to a failing regimen. That's the easiest way to develop drug resistance. A clinical pearl is after completion of two months of intensive TB treatment, it is important to obtain sputum specimens for AFP stain and culture. Continued positive sputum cultures tend to correlate with risk for relapse after completing treatment for pulmonary tuberculosis. Having a pulmonary cavity on initial chest imaging also is a big risk factor for relapse after initial therapy. Now, let's look at treatment interruption. Assuring continuous treatment is the most important factor during the initial intensive phase of TB therapy when the bacillary population is highest and the chance of developing drug resistance is greatest. If greater than 14 days of therapy is missed during the initial intensive phase, it is recommended to restart the intensive therapy again. Or, if less than 80% of the continuation phase has been completed and there is greater than a three-month gap in therapy, restarting the whole therapy, including intensive phase, is recommended. According to the CDC, administer all the specified number of doses for the intensive phase within three months and those for the four-month continuation phase within six months so that the six-month regimen is completed no later than nine months. Now, another patient on our medicine service is under evaluation for TB because of an abnormal chest x-ray and also has a chronic cough with weight loss. But this patient has three negative sputum AFB smears. Is the diagnosis of TB excluded? What other tests should be ordered? It is still possible that this patient, this new patient, has TB despite the negative AFB smears. Although three negative sputum smears are referred to as, quote, TB rule-out in many hospitals, this is a misnomer because it does not rule out TB. However, it does exclude highly infectious TB disease. This is because AFB smear positive patients have a higher bacillary burden of TB organisms in their sputum. 
and therefore are considerably more infectious to others than smear negative patients. The best test to order in this new patient is a nucleic acid amplification test, including but not limited to TBPCR, Amplicor, MTB, Amplified Mycobacterium tuberculosis direct tests, or Cephe gene expert, on at least the first sputum specimen collected from the patient under evaluation for TB. For guidance on how to interpret the combination of AFB smear and nucleic acid amplification tests, we can look at Table 40.2. Table 40.2 is entitled Diagnostic Interpretation of Acid-Fast Bacilli, Sputum Smear, and Nucleic Acid Amplification Tests, NAAT results. Here we see a four-square table. So on the vertical column, we have the label of nucleic acid amplification test positive and the one below it negative. And across the horizontal top boxes, we have AFB smear positive and the second column being AFB smear negative. So if you have a nucleic acid amplification test, I'll refer to as NAT positive, and your AFB smear is positive, well, that indicates tuberculosis. But if you have a NAT positive, but AFB smear negative, that still could indicate tuberculosis, likely with a low burden of disease. And you really should repeat with a new smear and await for final cultures for further determination. If you have a NAT negative, but an AFB smear positive, and then repeat testing shows the same result, it most likely indicates a non-tuberculous mycobacteria. If you have a NAT negative and an AFB smear negative result and you repeat it on additional specimens and it confirms the same result, this would make it unlikely that there is any mycobacterial, especially TB disease. However, if you still highly suspect TB because of other clinical factors, you should look for additional ways to try to diagnose your TB. Now, it is important to note that a negative NAT test on an AFB sputum smear negative specimen does not rule out TB. This is because among culture-confirmed TB cases, AFB sputum smear negative patients have low numbers of organisms or low bacillary burden. And therefore, nucleic acid amplification tests are less sensitive at detecting TB in these patients. Culture remains the gold standard of diagnosis. And clinical judgment is important in interpreting the results of all TB tests. So just to reiterate things, the last clinical pearl is, although often called a, quote, TB rule-out, unquote, three negative AFB sputum smears do not exclude the diagnosis of TB. Smears are negative in about 40% of patients with culture-confirmed TB disease. However, the finding of three negative smears makes highly infectious pulmonary TB unlikely. So now let's look at a few beyond the pearls tidbits. Number one, for most patients, lifetime risk of progression from latent TB infection to active TB disease is about 10%. However, in patients with advanced HIV AIDS, risk of progression is about 5 to 15% annually. Point number two, TB may be found in any organ, and extrapulmonary disease can be very difficult to diagnose. For example, 
peritoneal TB resembles malignancy with ascites and peritoneal implants. Beyond the pearl, point number three. A standard regimen for TB is two months of RIPE, followed by four months of rifampin and isoniazid. However, treatment may be extended for severe disease or extrapulmonary disease such as TB meningitis or osteomyelitis. Number four, for an AFB smear positive sputum, an FDA-approved nucleic acid amplification test like a PCR has a positive predictive value of greater than 95%, meaning PCR is a very good test for evaluation making a diagnosis of TB on AFB smear positive sputum. For AFB smear negative sputum, an FDA-approved nucleic acid amplification test, PCR test, is only about 50 to 80% sensitive to exclude the diagnosis of TB in that negative sputum. So a negative TB PCR in this situation should not exclude the diagnosis of TB. Point number five, avoid the use of fluoroquinolone such as levofloxacin and moxifloxacin for empiric treatment of bacterial pneumonia in patients who might have TB in order to avoid giving monotherapy that could select for TB drug resistance. Point number six. For patients with both lung cavity and positive AFB sputum cultures two months after intensive phase of TB treatment, it is recommended to extend continuation TB treatment to seven months. If the patient has only a lung cavity or positive AFB sputum cultures two months after the intensive phase of TB treatment, it is advised to monitor those patients more closely and consider extension of continuation therapy based upon clinical response. Number seven, there are new rapid molecular tests for TB resistance that can predict resistance in less than 24 hours. These tests compare to TB isolate genetic sequence to a library of known mutations that correlate with drug resistance. Point number eight, Glucocorticoids are not contraindicated for TB patients receiving effective TB therapy and are recommended, actually, for treatment of TB meningitis and TB pericarditis. Point number nine, multidrug-resistant TB is resistant to both rifampin and isoniazid. Extensively drug-resistant TB, or XDR, is resistant to rifampin, isoniazid, at least one fluoroquinolone, be that cipro, floxacin, moxifloxacin, or levofloxacin, and at least one injectable agent, which usually are amikacin, capriomycin, or canamycin. Beyond the pearl point number 10, for patients with drug-resistant TB or intolerance to first-line TB drugs, traditional second- and third-line TB drugs include the fluoroquinolone, such as levofloxacin, moxifloxacin. Other oral medications such as capriomycin, linazolid, cycloserine, ethionamide, and paraaminosalicylic acid, or PAS, as well as injectables such as amikacin, streptomycin, and capriomycin are used. Number 11, bedaclin and pretonamid received FDA approval for use as part of combination treatment of XDR-TB, or treatment-tolerant, non-responsive MDR-TB. Lastly, 
In patients with pre-existing peripheral neuropathy, experts recommend using pyridoxine 100 mg orally daily while on isoniazid therapy. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.